Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris as we take a look at finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, now with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. If you have your Bibles, turn to or turn on to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. And if you recall, we are going through the Old Testament and we're proving one point. That Jesus is the thesis of Scripture. That Jesus is the thesis of Scripture. So last week we looked at what book? Genesis, and we looked how Jesus is all over Genesis. And where was the very first place we saw our Lord? In the white spaces before Genesis 1-1. Before God said, in the beginning, Jesus was. And so last week we looked at that, how even the verbs... And the subject, the noun, it all points to the Trinity and how let us make man in our image according to our likeness and how the New Testament shows Christ is the creator God, that through him all things were made and nothing was made outside of him. So we saw Jesus as our creator God. And so he created the world, the heavens and the earth. He created the garden, Adam and Eve, and they lived in perfect harmony, walking with God in the cool of the day. And then you know what happens. Adam and Eve, they messed up. You know, they missed the mark. They failed the test, and God came in and caused judgment. There was a wrath upon them. And so God committed judgment against man, against woman, and against whom? The serpent, right? And what was his message to the serpent? Genesis 3.15. It's known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of, of the gospel. What does God do? He creates his creation, messes his creation up, and then God then begins to redeem the world. And what's his message? Genesis 3.15. You have your Bibles in front of you, Genesis 3.15. What's the message? That the woman, her seed, is going to come, and and that seed is going to crush Satan's head. But in the meantime, what happens to the seed? He's going to be crushed as well. The Bible used the word bruised, and that means crushed, terminated, or damaged. So Satan's going to be crushed, but in the meantime, the seed of the woman also will be crushed. And then God specifically states his gospel message in Genesis chapter 5. The chapter that you and I always skip over because it's the genealogies of Adam all the way to Noah. And so we just read, okay, uh, so-and-so begot Seth and so-and-so begot Methuselah, and then we don't even read through it. But when you take the meanings of those names and you put them together, we see God's holy gospel. What does Genesis 5 tell you and I? That man was appointed mortal and sorrowful. But the blessed God came down teaching and through his death brings the despairing. And then what does Noah's name mean? Rest. 
will bring the despairing rest. It's God's holy gospel. And then how is God going to do it? Through a man named whom? Abram. God goes to Abram and says, go to the land that I will show you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so it took Abraham about 25 years or so, but eventually Abraham goes. And God goes to Abraham and he gives him the sweet peas. What are those sweet peas? The great promises. I will give you a people. I will give you a, a place. And I will give you a promise that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God has this incredible plan that's about to get underway. But he needs to make a people first. And so how does the Lord do it in Genesis? Abraham begets who? Isaac, and Isaac has a son, and his name is Jacob. And Jacob has 12, and they become what? The tribes of Israel. Remember, Jacob has a name change to Israel. Israel has 12 boys, and they become the nation of Israel. There's a great famine in the land, and so they have to flee. And where do they go? Egypt. Lo and behold, the prince of Egypt happens to be their brother, Joseph. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. And so Joseph, he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. Pharaoh loved Joseph. Pharaoh uh, gave everything to Joseph because of the, the seven years of surplus and then the seven years of famine. And so how does Pharaoh then bless Joseph? What does he do? He does something very important to God's redemptive plan. What was it, Greg? He appoints Joseph as second in command, and then he blesses Joseph in a very specific way. What he does is he goes, you and all your people go to the land of Goshen. Now, if Southern California was Egypt, the land of Goshen would be Beverly Hills. It would be La Jolla. It was the creme de la creme. It was the most fertile land. It was the best land. It was the greatest place in all of Egypt. And, God, and Pharaoh showed Joseph his gratitude by giving the Israelites the very best in the land. So now for 400 years, the Israelites are in the very best land and they're growing in number. If you remember Exodus 1, the women of the Hebrews were very fertile. They were vigorous. They were much stronger than the women of Egypt, and so they were giving babies left and right. Uh, Israel had no foreign threat from enemies because Egypt is the world's superpower. And so what God has done for 400 years is incubated his people. He has kept them safe, and a little family is now growing into a massive nation. And uh, or economists, historians believe there was roughly a million or more people that exodus left Egypt at the time of the Passover. Over a million people from a man and 12 sons to over one million. So God has followed through with the promise, I'm going to give you a people. Now the second part, I'm going to give you a what? A place. So how does God do it? God is done with Egypt. Pharaoh has served this purpose. And now God says, it's time for my people to move on. I am going to take you into the land of promise. What happens with Pharaoh? Moses goes and says, what? Let my pickles go. And what does Pharaoh say? Mo, 
No. Moses, it's not going to happen. And rightfully so. The Jews were now slaves. There's roughly up to a million in the labor force. They're getting paid way under minimum wage to produce a tremendous amount of work. What happens to the Egyptian economy when that entire workforce is gone? The whole country goes under. So Pharaoh's saying, no way, we cannot do it. And with that, we now open up to Exodus chapter 11. God does what? He brings plague one, plague two, plague three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine rocked, rattled, and rolled all of Egypt. They're on the ropes. They don't even know what really is going on, but God is showing and flexing his power. And then there is one tenth and final plague. And through this plague and the Passover redemption, we see Christ, our Passover lamb. So Exodus chapter 11, starting at verse one. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man asks from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. Verse 3, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So God tells Moses to command the people to do what? To go to the Egyptians and ask for what? Gold and silver. And God said he will give them favor. So before they're slaves in Egypt, before they're released, what God is doing is there's a transference of wealth that is taking place. It is going from the rich Egyptians, and that transference of wealth is going to Israel. Why? Because God has to create a nation out of them, and it takes money to have a nation. So there's a transference of wealth before the deliverance. So kind of put that in your cloud. We're going to open that file back up later. So after that, God says there's going to be a transference of wealth. Verse 4 says, And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of all the cattle, or of the slave girl who is behind the millstone, all the firstborn of all the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before, and such as shall never be again. But against the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, go out you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot, from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. So Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. Anybody know how many times the Bible mentions Pharaoh's heart being hardened? 14 times the Bible explicitly says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Interesting. The first seven, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. The last seven, God is meeting him right where he's at. God is absolutely fair and absolutely equitable. Pharaoh denied God. God God therefore denied Pharaoh. And so the stage is set for the Passover lamb. And so we're going to look at a couple things in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at when the lamb is to be sacrificed. We're going to look at what the requirements of the Passover lamb are to be. And then we're going to look at the relationship between the Israelites and the Passover lamb. And when we do that, we're going to see how Christ is our perfect Passover lamb and what the implications are for you and I. So Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. When does the Passover take place? Exodus 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Notice God is creating a nation, and what does he institute? What does he create there in verse 2? A brand new calendar. It's a brand new nation. They're no longer going to go off the calendar of the gods of Pharaoh. They are no longer going to go off of the fake astrology of Babel. They are going to have a brand new calendar, one that revolves around the very work of God. Notice they go from being enslaved And when God delivers them through the Passover, it's a brand new beginning. All things made new, beginning with the very calendar. So there's a brand new calendar. And verse 3 says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of the month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Verse 6 says, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 1, says, observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. So in the 10th day of the very first month of Abib, which is the ancient Hebrew calendar. The modern day Hebrew calendar would be the month of Nisan. So like Nisan, the car minus an S. That's the current uh, calendar of the Passover. On the 10th day of Nisan to the 14th day of Nisan, the Passover lamb is to be within the presence of the people. Now in our calendar here in America, the month of Nisan, does anybody know that time frame? 
March, April. Uh, roughly the middle of March to roughly the middle of April is our Nisan or Passover season within the Christian faith. So it was to happen on the very first month, which is Nisan on the 10th day, and it was to happen or the people were to be with the lamb until the 14th day. And then verse five, here are the requirements of the Passover lamb. Verse 5 says, your lamb shall be unblemished, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep and from the goats. And verse 46 says, concerning this Passover lamb, it is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. So the lamb is to do, have what requirements? It's to be a male. It's to be unblemished, which means what? Perfect. Externally perfect. Another way to think of it, it checks every box. Another way to think of it, it hits every mark. Now, when you think of sin, what is the definition of sin? to miss the mark. So to be unblemished is to be sinless. It's to hit the mark in every way. But internally, it says the bones are not to be broken, which is fascinating. Why in the world would God command the Passover lamb to not have any bones broken? Okay, but they didn't know of Jesus back in Exodus. So why, what symbolically is God doing? Why is it not to break any bones? So the Bible says that the, the blood, right, what, what happens with the blood? In the blood, there is forgiveness. There, without the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sins. Also, the Bible says that the life is in the what? Blood. So where does your body produce blood? In the bone. The idea is externally and internally perfect. In every way, the Passover lamb was to be absolutely perfect. And then the Jews had to uh, react to this lamb in a certain way. Number one, you had to fellowship with it. From day 10 to day 14, the lamb was with you. It was basically one work week. So Nisan the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, and on the 14th, what do you do with that lamb? At twilight, what are you to do with it? Sacrifice it. So the lamb is slit, is slain on the Passover at twilight. And then we see uh, verse 6 and following that you need to apply the blood. Verse 6 says, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So you kill the blood or you kill the lamb and then you take the blood. The Bible says you are to take it in a basin and then you are to take hyssop, which is a plant, and you are to put it on the doorposts of the house and at the top of the house. It's fascinating that the Egyptians, they had a thing called a sap. And this sap was a, basically a way, a basin in which you can wash your feet. So in a doorway, right at the doorway, at the front of it was a hole. 
And there they would have a basin of water and you would go, you would wash your feet and then you would step over it and walk into the house with clean feet. It was a way in which they could clean their feet. The Jews more than likely used that basin to apply the blood of the lamb, which again is fascinating because when you connect the dots, you get a red cross right across the doorway of every home in which the angel of the Lord will pass over. So number one, you apply the blood of the slain lamb. It's no good killing the lamb in the field and leaving it there. That does nothing for you. Just like having a seatbelt in your car does no good for you unless you apply it to your life. You have to apply the blood. Secondly, you have to partake or commune or eat of the lamb. Verses 8 through 10. They shall eat of the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with all its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it until morning, but whatever is left until morning, you shall burn with fire. So what do you do with the lamb? You, number one, you snack on it, you you throw down, right? You become glutton, you and the other people in your home. And then when you are glutton, you've eaten, you've communed, and you've, you're full to the brim, you take the rest of it and do what? Why? There's two real important reasons why. If you go back to Leviticus, you remember there's one reason. What are you to do with the guilt offering and the silk, 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 sin offering? What are you to do with the guilt offering and the silk, silk, cheese, the sin offering? What do you do with those two? You kill them and then you take them out and the whole thing is to be set on fire. The guilt offering and the sin offering are interesting because one is where you willingly know you transgress against God and the other one you accidentally sin against God. So the idea of the entire land being consumed is the idea that both your sins willingly and your sins unwillingly have been forgiven. But there's another reason why. The Passover lamb must be consumed fully for one other reason. Any, anybody know? So that the Passover lamb's flesh will not enter into decay. Now that's going to be fascinating when we look to Jesus and the resurrection and why God had to call him before his body entered into decay. So with the Passover lamb, you apply the blood, you take and eat. Verse 11, you get ready for a new life. Verse 11, now you shall eat it in the in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Thus the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So how are you to be ready when you partake of the Passover lamb? 
ready to go. And what are you ready for? The new beginning. You're going from being enslaved where you have no rights and liberties and God is saying, I am preparing you for freedom and a new journey, a brand new way of living, a new mission so that you will get to the promised land flowing with milk and with honey. So you apply the blood, you eat of it, you get ready for the new life. And here's the last one. And it's down in verse 17. You are then to partake in the feast of unleavened bread. Verse 17, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening. So what happens there? On the, fir- on the month of Nisan, on the 14th day at evening. What happens with the lamb? You slaughter it, and immediately what begins? The feast of unleavened bread. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening. So twilight happens, the lamb has been slayed. You shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is an alien or a native of the land, you shall not eat anything leavened and all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread anybody here heard of spring cleaning this is where it came from the jews had to clean everything to ensure there was no leaven in the home so there would be spring cleaning where top to bottom wall to wall everything was cleared out to make sure that there was no leaven Why? Because God said, if there's leaven, what happens to you? You are cut off. You are cut off. So when it comes to the Passover, the Jews were to apply the blood, eat the body. They were then to get ready for their new life, and they were to be obedient to the Lord. Now let's fast forward 1,500 years. There was a guy who walked around in the same desert that the people of Israel wandered in. He wore camel's hair. He ate honey with lotus. John the Baptist. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, John 1, 29, it says this. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, who was born first in the flesh, John the Baptist or Jesus? By six months, yet he is showing the preeminence of Christ. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. 
I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Think about that. If John the Baptist says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then what does that apply and assume about the world? Sinful. And because of that sin, what's the repercussion? Death, that's the ultimate result, but currently. So think of it like this. Think of it like this. If Israel is likened to us, and Israel was in Egypt, and and the Passover lamb had to do what? To get the Israelites out. Okay, he had to sacrifice, and what then happened with Israel? What was the repercussion? The, The Passover lamb was sacrificed, and then what did Pharaoh do? He then released Israel out. So if Israel is in sin and in bondage and the Passover lamb freed them, then what is John implying? That the Passover lamb is here for the world, so the world therefore must be enslaved. The world must be enslaved. If Jesus is the Passover lamb to the world, it means the world therefore is enslaved. They are under the the master of sin. He is the spiritual, if you will, Pharaoh. He has taskmasters over the world, and people are in bondage to him. So the Passover lamb comes to then release those who are in bondage and in slavery. So Christ has come to set us free. Free from whom? Sin. The master, sin. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus talks about this. And he says in John 8, 31, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly a disciple of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You see how blind these people are and enslaved to their, to the, the lies of their own belief system? We've never been enslaved. Really? The Jews were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They were enslaved to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to the Grecians, to the Romans, to the Medo-Persian Empire. They were slaves all over the place. And yet they said, we've never been slaves. And then Jesus answered them, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The slave, the son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And the reality is, is our former lives, we were all slaves to sin. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, you were dead 
in your trespasses and in your sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, Christ made us alive to... or. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 14, or verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by, and if anybody has Ephesians 2, verse 13 open, finish the last part. By the blood of God. Christ. What is Ephesians 2 saying? That we were enslaved to our master's sin and our entire lives revolved around serving him. And you know what is really sad about the sin master? He's incredibly cruel. He's incredibly cruel. The thing about sin is there's never too much. It always demands more. It starts with a hit. It starts with a shot. Next, it's the whole thing. Next, it's all bottles. Next, you know, you were able to control it. Now it's controlling you. And the Bible says this, don't be a fool. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. But if you sow to the life, you will receive life everlasting. The reality is the sin master is cruel because he will take and he will take and he will take and he will take and you get momentary and fleeting moments of happiness. But in the end, the wages of sin is death. And we see that in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. But now, oh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6. Let me go up there. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and verse 22. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So every human being is a slave. You either have the Savior as your master or you have sin as your master. Sin will take, take, take. The Lord will give, give, give. Sin, the wages, ultimately lead to death. So you serve and you labor and you work for sin. Your whole life, you're laboring and you're getting after it. And then what is sin's paycheck to you? What is sin's direct deposit to you? Death. You earn death. He is a very cruel master.
And the old nature wants to feed into him. The old nature wants to give back. And that's why Galatians 5 says, it is for freedom Christ has set you free. Do not go back to the yoke of bondage. Christ has redeemed you. That means he's bought you back from slavery. Do not go back to the yoke of bondage. So then, now let's look at the when of the Passover. What was the month of Passover? It's like the car without the S. Nisan, right? On what day? The 10th, you are to get the lamb. And then what day are you to sacrifice the lamb? The 14th. So think about this. When did Christ enter into Jerusalem? And when did the people lay down the palm branches? And when did the people cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now? The 10th of Nisan. The Passover lame, the Passover lame, they were lame. The Passover lamb came and they did what? We worship you, save now, you're our Messiah, you're our Redeemer. So on Monday of Passion Week, the lamb was with them. On Tuesday of Passion Week, the lamb was with them. On Wednesday of Passion Week, the lamb was with them. On Thursday of Passion Week was the beginning of the Sadar. And it's fascinating because the very last meaningful Passover is the very first communion there in the upper room. The lamb, the Passover lamb has been with the people for the full five days. And then he is betrayed. He is beaten. He is mocked. He's stripped down and humiliated. His back is torn apart. A crown of thorns is slammed on his head. His beard is ripped from his body. And even then, like a a sheep before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. Christ came exactly as the Passover lamb was intended to be. Now, what was the Passover lamb's qualifications? He was to be a male. He was to be in the prime of his life. And he was to be sinless, unblemished, inside and out. First Peter chapter 1 verse 17, which is interesting because when John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, it says there were two disciples next to John. One of them was named Andrew. He went and grabbed his brother. What was his brother's name? Simon. He brought Simon and Jesus said, oh, for Pete's sakes. No, he said, you're Simon. I'm going to call you Petros or Cephas, which means stone or rock. You are now Peter. Now, Peter did a lot of good things, and he did some bad things. We know his story. Later on in life, that same Peter writes 1 Peter chapter 1, and listen to what it says about our Passover lamb. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed. What does the word redeemed mean? Purchased, ransomed. It's literally in the Roman Greco world to be bought from the slave market. 
You are literally bought from the slave market. You have not been redeemed, purchased off the slave market with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What does this say about Jesus? He's sinless. Paul would write, and he says this, he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of Christ in him. Jesus knew no sin. Hebrews chapter four and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest we cannot sympathize with, our, who cannot sympathize with our weakness but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So the, the lamb was to be uh, perfect on the outside. It was to be a male on the prime of his life. And what about his bones? They were not to be John chapter 19, verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the crucifixion, you actually don't die from bleeding out. You die from oxygen. You're not allowed to breathe. And so you suffocate to death. So what people would do is their legs were pinned as they would try to push up off the nail so that they can stretch out their diaphragm and get a little bit of oxygen into their body. And so they would kind of push, even if it's just millimeters with their legs to be able to breathe in and to breathe out. The Romans would break the legs and breaking the legs meant they would die quicker because they couldn't push up to be able to get oxygen in. So their goal, let's kill these guys really, really quickly. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true that he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. So we noticed when the lamb comes, we looked at what the lamb of God is to be like. What's the next thing? How are we to interact with the lamb? Do you guys remember the four steps from Exodus 12? You number one, apply the blood. You number two, do what? Partake or, or consume. Number three, you then get ready for your journey. And then number four comes obedience. So how are we to respond to Jesus Christ? Number one, the blood has to be applied to your life. Your wife being saved doesn't get you into heaven. 
Your parents being saved doesn't mean that you get into heaven. Everybody has their own relationship with the Lord. And every single human being has the responsibility of applying the Passover lamb or rejecting the Passover lamb. It's your choice. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, how does one apply the blood of Jesus to their lives? So what, what is that? What is that? What is acceptance? What is another word for acceptance? Surrender. What's another word? Repentance. So we are saved by what? Through? There we are. Faith. How do you apply the blood of Christ to your life? Through faith. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the, here's our R word again. What's that word? Redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? To be bought off the slave market. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. And how did God do it? Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. What Paul is saying is God demonstrated his love to the world at the cross. It was a public demonstration. There the Passover lamb's blood was shed and by faith, just like Abraham, you believe God and it is accounted to you as righteousness. So number one, just like the Jews, for us to be released from the bonds of slavery, we must apply the blood of the Passover lamb. The second thing, the blood, and then you do what with the meat? You consume it. How do we consume Christ? Communion. Eat my my body, drink my blood. And remember the Jews are saying, that's gross. This guy's crazy. He's lost his mind. How can he do this? Because he's the Passover lamb and he's the manna that has fallen from heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Why do the Jews do Passover? To remember God releasing them from slavery. To always remember God releasing them from slavery. Why do we take communion? Verse 24 goes on. Or verse 25 says, in the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
It's the exact same thing. First, you're saved by faith through the blood of the Lamb, and then you are to commune and fellowship with the Lord, your Deliverer. So you take of the blood and apply it. You eat of the body. And then what's the next step? What did the Jews have to do? Be prepared for what? The new life. You're out of bondage. You're out of slavery. You no longer have a master who wants you to die. It's a new life. Dress the part, put on what God has called you to wear, and go out on your mission. Christianity is an evangelical mission, meaning we are called to go and share, go and bring in, go look for the lost sheep, go into the highways and the byways. That's the mission. We don't get saved and, and go into our little monastery. We don't go into a cave and, and you know, contemplate our navel and try to get lost in nothingness. We are called to put on our shoes, get our staff, wear the right garments, and go out. Make disciples, teaching them to obey all things, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not going to get into it, but fascinating. You had to go through the rite of circumcision to do Passover. Baptism is the new circumcision. And so it's all just tying into God's perfect plan. So why was the, the animal to be burned fully? A sin offering, a guilt offering, and the, the Passover lamb cannot decay, right? Was not to rot. How long did the Jews say before decay took in or began to happen? The Jews believed that three days, a person or an animal would die and their spirit would hover. But after the third day would depart and then the body would turn in to decay and begin to break down. In Psalm 1610, God is speaking of his holy one. What's another name for holy one? Anointed one. What's another name for anointed one? The Hebrew word is Mashiach. The, the Greek word is Christ. The Christ. I will not allow my Christ to see corruption and decay. What does that mean? That means that Messiah will not be allowed to die and stay dead. The third day he will rise and ascend. He will be fully consumed, not a blood waste, not a drop of blood wasted. It was a complete and a full sacrifice. And how do we know God accepted it? The resurrection. God was well pleased. He accepted the sacrifice and the resurrection took place and God or Christ then ascended and sat at the right hand of the Father. So we apply the blood through faith. We commune with Christ in fellowship. We are then to live and get ready for the new life. And then what's the last part? The feast of unleavened bread. We are immediately to go into the feast of unleavened bread. What is leaven in the Bible? Sin. The Bible always equates sin and leaven together. Why is that? Because leaven decays and it decays quickly. And just like sin, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin spreads quickly. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, 
Just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's a, what's a biblical term for what Paul is trying to tell us? Be holy. Be set apart. Be sanctified. There is to be no sin in your life. Get rid of it fully and completely. Don't live the old sinful way. Live the life of sincerity and love. Another way to say that is speak the truth in love. You're a new vessel with a new purpose. You've been purchased off of slavery and you have a new mission and that is to be holy. For Christ is our Passover. Now the last part and then we'll close. Remember I told you to store away in the top of your brain in the cloud uh, a, a point. Did anybody remember it? All right, we have dev error. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> Remember the transference of wealth. Remember the people of Israel, they went to the Egyptians and what did the, the Egyptians do? They gave them gold and they gave them silver. So much so they can build a golden calf out there in the wilderness. I mean, these people were not poor. So they were poor as slaves. Christ set them free and they left free with a bunch of of wealth. And it's the same thing with us in Christ. We've been set free through faith in Christ. We are then to commune with our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to live a new life with a new purpose, and we are to be holy. And in that, we have been made rich. Just like Israel had that transference of wealth, so too as Christians, you and I have been made wealthy. Jesus put it this way, it, now with the church, if you were to fall on hard times, guess what? For example, if I were to fall on hard times, I can go to your house and you would open your door and you would feed me. I can go to your house and you would open your door and feed me. I can go to any of your homes. We are rich in Christ, both in the here and now and for eternity. God has transferred wealth into your name. So much so that Romans chapter 8 says you've been made an heir of God and a co-heir of Christ. Now, when you think of an inheritance from your earthly father, let's say, maybe it was okay, maybe he was broke as a joke, maybe your dad wasn't even around. But what does your heavenly father own? And your name is on the will. You are an heir of God and a co-heir of Christ because you've been released from the bonds of slavery through our Passover lamb. Now, there are a lot of other places, but we're not going to look at them this morning. We could have saw Jesus at the burning bush. We could have saw Jesus as the manna falling from heaven. John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. And the Jews were like, you're crazy. We're not going to eat you. We're not going to drink of you. You're nuts. And then Jesus says this, your forefathers ate of the, the manna from heaven, and what happened to them? They all died. But I am the true bread that has come 
from heaven. And the one who eats from him will never die. So Jesus is in the burning bush. He is the Passover lamb. He is the manna that falls down from heaven. Here's another one. Moses says there is one greater than I coming. There will be a great prophet, the mighty prophet, the holy one. And he's going to be better than me. And he's going to come up from Israel. From this bloodline, there is going to be one greater than I. If you know the Orthodox Jews, you know they love them some Moses. They actually call him Holy Moses. He was revered. And they, to this day, they revere Holy Moses. And Moses himself says, there's one greater than me that is coming. That's Jesus Christ. Here's another one in Exodus. When Moses smote the rock, and out came living water. What did Moses do again? He smote the rock a second time. And that's why he was banned from the promised land. Paul tells us that that rock giving living water was Christ himself. And he was only needed to be smitten once and for all. Is it smitten or smote? Yes, he was only to be smitten once and for all. So when you look at Genesis and when you look through Exodus, Jesus is the thesis of Scripture. He's literally everywhere. And with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, just giving clarity of word. We thank you, God, that we have Scripture. We thank you, God, that you are, uh, that you've sent your Passover lamb the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And we thank you, God, that by faith, that truth has been appropriated to the doorposts of our own hearts. And we are thankful, Lord, that through you, we have freedom. We are thankful, Lord, that through you, we have tremendous wealth. And Lord, we are called now to live differently to commune with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be about the Father's business, and to be holy. Father, I just pray for any sins that we may be ensnared in, for the chains that we can't seem to break, that we would know that Christ, our Passover, has broken every chain, and has set us free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And Lord, we thank you for our liberty. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.